I don't know if it's just Testolanders that this is typical for snow. You guys came out, and I don't know if this is normal, but this is kind of the first winter we've had here, big snow. So thank you for coming. It's good to see you. We are uh, we are following Paul throughout Turkey, and now we're into Greece, and we're going to go into Corinth. And what I'm going to do today is I want to talk about. Um, some things that we're going to learn and watch as we watch Paul in action. But today we're going to talk about communicating Christ uh, cross-culturally. And uh, this is a big, big, big topic. I, uh, I taught cross-cultural communication for 15 years in Japan. And to teach the Japanese how to go out of Japan and then into another world is a is as challenging as to teach a Christian to go out into a non-Christian context. And therefore, there's lots going on beyond language and content. And it's very emotional, it's very effective, and it's affective in, in the sense that it will touch your heart and sometimes you quit, don't know how to speak, and so it's relational to the core. But as you go into these things, what we're interested in is learning how God uses God's people to help those who don't know Christ come to that saving knowledge of Christ. You may have some stereotypes what that means, and you certainly may think, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and, uh, but God has given us all a part to play because we're all part of this tapestry of the kingdom. But as we get into it, there are some things I want to share with you as we go through and real, real briefly. Um, and it will be brief because I'd like to spend lots of time on this, but I won't. But there are five points I'm going to jump through and uh, catch what you can. And, and don't worry if you can't remember these things because you'll hear them again. But the things I want to talk about come, uh, come right from Scripture. But two, uh, to think that when you're talking about crossing cultures, there's lots of things, dynamics and that are involved. But here are the five things that culture is not a problem to be solved. Culture is a, is a wonderful creation by God himself. God loves the nations as he loves the variety of trees and the variety of animals and the variety of personalities. He also is the creator of culture. We'll talk about that. Communication is also uh, going across culture is also God's idea because God is a communicator. It ties in with language at times, ties in with learning how people's worldview uh, operates. And so there are different things about culture, but we want to look at the fact that Jesus gives us a model how to do that and that Paul understood that model. And you can too understand that relational model of communicating, of incarnating the gospel. And you have that piece, that puzzle piece where, where you fit into the world. Because your life is significant and your relationships matter. And how you move in the world is going to de uh, define and, and have you discover how God uses your experience to touch other people and how other people will touch you. But uh, the idea that you're talking about culture, some interesting things about the word culture. Uh, first of all, it's a, a culture with a small c, not culture with a capital K. We're talking about the ritzy and the artist and the sophisticated culture. You're not, you're not being cultured. You're talking about the regular 
normal people that, that you bump into. And the interesting thing about the word cult, I don't know if you know this, but the word cult in Latin and back in the Greek, it takes it back to the idea of worship. And culture is an expression of what a group of people have become committed to worship. And in every culture, I've mentioned last year, that there are core values that define those cultures. For America, the number one value, what we worship, and we do worship it, is freedom. We will kill for freedom. We have died for freedom. It is the number one thing that really defines American culture. And that culture is at our core value. As Japan's core value is harmony. They will fight for harmony. They will die for harmony. They want peace at all costs now because they've They've always had that deep sense because of the Shinto culture that harmony and beauty was there. The World War II was an aberration. There's something that went off. But their core values, they never, they were humble people, quiet people, beautiful people. And then there's the other side we won't get into. Every culture has a core value. A cult is abnormal or deviant worship. Uh, then you have these phrases of cross-cultural. And if you go cross-culture uh, to understand, and these are used, and they're very popular in, in organizations today in, in terms of multinational companies giving you cross-cultural training, departure training and reorientation training and sensitivity training and diversity training, all that's there. But the idea of crossing cultures means that there's one group, one identifiable political entity defined that moves into another relational group with a different set of cultural values. And so you have cross-cultural. You're learning how to enter into a different world, which we will talk about too. Or you may be bicultural. If, you, uh, if you've lived in two countries and you've, you're an expatriate uh, and, and you have a community over there and uh, you can have a mixture of cultures, uh, you have an interculture where you have more than one cultures mixing together and then you have multicultural. Again, it's a manifold as with... Uh, the multinational nations are not necessarily cultures, but nations are government entities, and so they're recognized as such, but there's a culture in that nation. So, and so you have all these phrases when people talk about international, cross-cultural, but it means this, you move. And how you move and how you are received and how you are experienced in your relationships in whatever culture it is. If you are a male and you're married, or not married even, if you're a male and you start talking to a female, you're going cross-cultural. A male will look outside and it may be raining. The man says, oh, it's raining outside. Not, the woman doesn't think that. The woman says, it's raining outside. There goes my hair. I got to cut my hair. And so her mind goes in a different place. 
Whereas men just kind of think differently. You guys figure that out. Men are from Mars and I don't know what I'm going to say. Anyway. But the idea that culture is God's idea. And the Bible is very clear and Paul picks this up as he says in the book of Acts. From one man he made all the nations. And the story, the narrative of the scripture is that the the oral traditions, as we understand from, from the Hebrew mindsets and from the scriptures, is that they should inhabit the whole earth. God wanted the Inepiat people north and the Guambiano people in Colombia south. He knows and he appointed, he marked them out and he marked their times and the boundaries of their land. What this says first and foremost is the, the Lord of creation is the sovereign Lord of creation and he's the sovereign Lord of culture. And therefore, when you understand that from Genesis, from Adam and you go to Noah in chapter 6 and you get the flood and then you have Noah's sons, you have Japheth, Ham, and Shem, here are the Europeans, here are the Africans, and here are the Asians. But from the stories, from the stories of, of the genealogies at the beginning, it's an oral tradition handed down about how did God's people come into being. And so the first 12 chapters of Genesis, the first 12 chapters are a prologue of the whole redemptive story beyond. And so now God, having created the world and having populated the world, you've got this table of nations in chapter 10. And if you want to mark that as a, in your mind, the table of nations is given in chapter 10. And so automatically from the get-go, you have God interested in missions for the nations. And, uh, and therefore, understand that culture is God's idea, it's, he wanted it, he, he loves it, but he created the cultures in order to prevent that Tower of Babel, that one humanity would build itself up to such a degree that they don't need God. And God gave all the languages, Genesis 12. But just as cultures came through Adam and Noah, so did sin, as Paul would say in Romans just as sin entered the world through one man, and death came to all men because of that sin. Because all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. We know that one man's influence affects his generation. Likewise, Paul picks up, if the trespass of the one man, death, reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace, underline that, God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through another man, Jesus Christ. And so all of this has to do with the, the idea of a, of a narrative for all the nations. And so God is interested in communicating that story about how his son would reign over death and how his son would reign over life and how his son would reign over the cultures. And so culture is God's idea. Communication is God's idea. Because didn't Jesus say, 
Go therefore into all the nations. And those word, that word nation is ethnos, people groups. And if you understand, when you think about how many languages there by the way, do you know how many languages there are on earth? Do, 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 do. 5,375, depending on which group is coming and going. There are 5,000 different people groups. Unbelievable to think about that. Do you know what country of the world speaks English, has the most English speakers in the world? Do you know? What country? Australia, India, America, China. There are more English-speaking Chinese than Americans because they got 1.3. I mean, the, the English speakers over there way outnumber us. And therefore, Jesus would say, you shall be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, to the remotest part. When the Holy Spirit fills his people, and then there's a witness, there's a story to be told to the ends, and, and even to the nations, Isaiah would say, to the, to the very corners of the world. So, and therefore, you understand that communication is important, and not just, here's your task, Jesus gives us a model. And that model comes in the form of, of Christ when he incarnated. And the, it says in John 1.14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he made his dwelling. Now, don't read that too fast. The word became like us and lived with us. The idea here is that there's a movement on the part of Christ to leave his culture, to leave the throne that he had and pursue us to tell the story that we are still wanted and invited to be part of the kingdom culture. And that story that Jesus would be sent to share the love of the Father, that we would participate and enjoy the, the work of the Spirit of God, and that we would be part of the kingdom culture, we have seen his glory and that's an experiential part that when you know the kindness of Christ, when you see the grace and you see the cross, and you see the sacrifice, you see that God will do anything to get you back into relationship. You still matter, nations. And he came and dwelt among us, and he gives us this model of being full of grace, and full of truth. And here's Christ coming in, and as he does so, we just went through the season of Christmas. What, what does his name mean? God with us. And in that model, you have the seeds of the very effective way of communicating. It's a with him principle, with her principle. It's a relational connection where you share life on life. And Jesus did that with his disciples and with others. And so in Mark 3, it says that he appointed 12 men. He chose these 
ordinary people. They weren't rabbis. They weren't cultured. They were just regular guys that Jesus loved to death and life. But he loved them. And he says, he, he appointed them that they might be preoccupied and get busy and go out and do this task. No, no, no. He, he wanted them to be with him. Period. And being with Christ was enough. It was sufficient enough to have that interaction to see Jesus in prayer, to see Jesus uh, think about his own family, how he related to his brothers and sisters. It was a model where, where the angry James and John learned how Jesus would speak peace and, and how he would be challenged by these Pharisees and those who were unbelievers and how Jesus modeled the response of respect and engaging people in a, in a way that would he would listen and he would, he would uh, pull them out as that proverb says that, that a man of understanding will draw out people. Why did you go see John the Baptist? What did you expect? Pharisees, what did you expect to see? Did you, did you see a, a weirdo, a fanatic, a did you, did you go out to repent? And do, did you want to, Jesus was always engaging people and drawing them. Why do you think? Martha, Martha, didn't I say to you that if you would believe in me, you would see the rest? Didn't, don't you understand? Jesus was always connecting with what people were feeling, what, what people were thinking. Oh, this week it... Rick's funeral was, was a real interesting thought for me. I never thought about this, that, that Jesus never went to a funeral. Because everyone he went to, they were raised from the dead. They brought back to life. Lazarus came back, and the, the little girl had fallen asleep. He, he, he never went through the whole grieving process that we did, but he, he brought this resurrection life back because he wanted him to be with him. Likewise, Paul would say to Timothy, and, 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 and here's your word, participation again. It says, we sent Timothy, who is our brother and our co-worker in God's service. There, there's a partnership that if you're in that yoke fellowship of, of, of two oxen in the yoke, you're working together with, there's a, a co-laboring. This is what we talked about in the Bible study a couple of weeks ago. You are partners with Christ, companions with Christ. Friends of Christ, because you know Christ, and you love him. And you struggle to understand him more, just like they did. But Timothy, as a co-worker, a brother, spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. So Jesus gave us that model to fill us with the Spirit, to be with us wherever we go, to disciple us and to invite us to work with him, and therefore, you come to Paul. And Paul also understood that model. If you go into the book of Luke, Luke records something interestingly in Acts 17. Luke says about Paul that when he, get into, when he gets into uh, Athens, when people read Luke's account, they think, Paul really messed it up here. Paul really didn't do a good job in Athens. 
Because when Paul gets to Athens, he didn't get to the gospel in the sense that he didn't talk about the cross. He didn't talk about, he didn't talk about uh, the resurrection in, in the sense that the way he should. He didn't get to the idea of, of asking Christ to be in his heart and be Lord and Savior. Paul didn't get that far. And so some people think Paul's attempt to speak to the philosophers of Athens was a failure. But Luke records things in here that I think those who think that way misunderstand this passage. Because what Paul shows us in Acts 17 is the same thing that Jesus does in his model. Paul was left alone. Timothy was, uh, and, and Silas and the others were, but Paul was by himself. Now what missionaries do usually when they go to a foreign field, if there's a new missionary coming in, you see some mission board, meet them at the gate with a sign, you know, I'm waiting for Jorge or whatever. And so you greet this guy coming in, and then immediately the young missionary goes to the mission compound, and he goes to those mission agencies that sent him, and they they are in a group of like-minded people. Paul wasn't with anybody who was like-minded. He was out there on his own. And if he went to the synagogue, they weren't believers yet because they hadn't heard of Christ, and therefore he didn't. He had work to do. But interestingly, Paul didn't go to a seminary. He didn't go to a conference. He didn't hold these rallies. He did what Jesus did. He went to be with people. And so walking around, he looks at all these statues, and he gets... He's really taking it in. Who are these guys? And as he understands their world, as he enters into their mythologies and their gods and goddesses, the 30 of them, 30,000 of them around Athens. But he understood something else about Athens, that Athens was a thinking town. Athens was a university town. But you get outside of Athens, something happens. People don't care about philosophy. People don't care about all this uh, Socrates and Plato and their, their rationalizing and science. And You go to Sparta. And Sparta, another city, was a different culture. It was a military culture. And Will Durant says, interestingly, that if you're a seven-year-old boy... In Sparta, you are taken from your family and you're put into a military compound from, 70, from 7 to age 30. And what they're going to do is toughen you up. You get one set of clothes for the whole year. You sleep outside. You are, you're made tough because power and strength for the Spartans makes a good man. And so if you can fight well and you can use your shield... You use your sword, you do whatever it takes to learn the art of military warfare. And if you go out to war and you carry your shield, you either will come back carried on your shield or carrying your shield. The way they were training those men in Sparta was so different than Athens. Well, Paul was taking in this culture and these core values. But what Paul did is the lessons that he learned, 
that people don't understand is that Paul went to the synagogue as he would reason with the people in the synagogue and he would reason with people out of the synagogue. Paul's model was to engage in people's understanding of what they knew and didn't know about God. And he didn't change his method. There's one man named William Ramsey who thought, now Paul really blew it in Athens. And that's why when he left Athens and he went to Corinth, Paul makes a sentence, sentence I'm not going to use that wisdom stuff again because I'm going to here to preach Christ only and I'm not here to persuade you with wisdom. That's a misunderstanding because he used the same reasoning in Corinth as he would do elsewhere. But the idea that the focus in Athens was they were only willing to let Paul go this far. And Paul, when he spoke... He spoke like he always spoke, and what he said was this. To the Athenians, there is a God, a monotheistic God, not a pluralism, uh, pluralistic thousands of God like you worship. There's only one God and one living God only, and the God you worship is not a God at all. And therefore, he had to break their understanding by introducing God as creator and God as the life giver to you and to you and to you and to all nations. God is the God of all the nations. And therefore, when Paul would speak to a little ethnocentric Greek, proud little group, and they're saying, we're part of the universe, Paul would enlarge their understanding. Not only would he say that there is a living God, and he is the one who made you, but he is the life giver to you and in all of creation. It all belongs to this Christ and the witness of the creation. He did this in Acts 14. He did it in Acts 17. There's no difference in the way Paul went at it because his message was the same. You don't know him and you are ignorant. That's not a very good way to win friends and influence people, is it? If you're full of grace and truth, you can say these. You really don't know the Lord. He says, you're full of ignorance, and yet God has appointed this time for you to come out of ignorance into the knowledge of understanding who, he, who his son is, and that's why he sent his son. And therefore, Paul would call the people to repentance because he introduced this idea that this one God has an eternity waiting for you. And if you don't know this eternity, the resurrection you don't know these things. What is this idle babbler saying? We don't, this doesn't fit our culture. This doesn't fit our way of thinking. And therefore, for Paul, as he gets into this, Paul says in his understanding, our gospel that's coming to you comes to you not simply with words, but it's in our relationships of power with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction, and you know how we lived among you for your sake. Paul would not only talk about the gospel, he lived the gospel relationally. And what that meant was that he, the way he presented this gospel to the Athenians would take the relationship as far as it would go. And they couldn't go any farther than where they were. Paul understood this. So in, in Athens, Paul would plant the seed 
God's Spirit would water that seed. Just like he said in Corinth, he picked this up, and this is Paul's understanding. This is your understanding as well. How you fit in the work of God is the same way as Paul would say, God has been making it grow. Not me, not my not my performance, not my wisdom, not my education, not what I understand, not my arguments, not my reason. God is the one who's at work in the nations. Paul believed that. I believe that. I don't know if you believe that. But God is far ahead of you and me because he's got other people he wants to know. And so we're just a a, a vessel, a means to an end because God's going to do the work. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to the labor. Therefore, Paul understood that his life story counted. And he would talk about how his journey, his testimony, he would certainly do more than this message in Acts 17, because he would leave the Jews and he would leave those philosophers, and he would go into the marketplace. He was engaging that culture with ordinary people. This was great Paul. This is lowly Paul, who left his culture to pursue people to say, you know, these skills are important. And for you to know that these, to have people understand the gospel means that you have to connect and move and open your mouth to tell your story. I just want to close uh, giving you the last thing about learning that relational model. This relational model I will share with you. I learned, I mean, I was really reinforced with this in uh, Cali, Colombia, by a, a, a paraplegic man who was a linguist. His name is Tom... Brewster. Tom and Betty Brewster are professors of the linguists. Uh, he's in a wheelchair. You can't see him, but he's, uh, he walks around. Uh, sorry, he, he went around to teach missionaries how to learn the languages in 86 different cultures, 83, 86 cultures. He was in Cali, Colombia, teaching the class I was in, language acquisition made practical. He was there for, the, the course was like for 14 weeks. He was there for three weeks and he was gone. Because he said, what you have to do is this. <laughs> he said, if you want to learn how to speak Spanish, I want you to go study in the morning a little bit, but in the afternoon, I want you to go and make 30 different contacts around the city and go practice what you learn in the morning. And so I did. So I went to, uh, I get my little card. Estoy aquí para aprender español. I'm here, I want to learn Spanish. Uh, Mi nombre es Jerry. Uh, Is it okay, my name is Jerry. Is it okay if I practice Spanish with you tomorrow? Uh, Está bien si puedo practicar con usted mañana. Hasta mañana. Four sentences. And I would take those four sentences to the bread shop. And in the bread shop, I'd say, hola, uh, estoy aquí para aprender español. Uh, Mi nombre es Jerry. Está bien para practicar mañana. Hasta mañana. And I would leave. (laughs) Who is that crazy guy? 
And I would go from 30 different, I went from there to the stationery store, to the post office, to the, uh, I went down to the bread shop, I went to the stadium, I went to the little locals, and I, I had 30 different contacts. And what Brewster's were saying is this, it's not the information that makes you learn the language, it's the relationship. And everywhere they go, they would put people out of the classroom and into the culture. Because you learn from the people, and when you learn from the people, you're also connecting and bonding. This bonding, this relational part, is what I want you to learn. It's your life on life. It's your sharing your story, of, not from argument, not from, not from any kind of purpose. or. It's just enjoy the relationship. The contrast of this is a man that I know in Japan, and he decided uh, that he was going to go to Japan, and he went to a city, and he started a ministry, and six months later, he felt pressure to write this prayer letter back home that he'd be successful in the ministry. And he had met a couple of Japanese, and he invited them into Bible study. They were in Bible study for two or three months, and they were thinking they were going to get a relationship going. And But when he began to asked these Japanese about their thinking and their faith and their commitment to be involved in the study, they realized that he did not really care about who they were. He was caring about being successful in the ministry. And they quit. When people pick up the fact that you don't care, they quit. They quit. And therefore, this bonding part is so important and let me finish with this one. It'll take two minutes. Brewster's told me this story, this model, that we go into relationships, especially as missionaries or pastors or, or Christians. We go in with this idea that we have a business model, that we are the businessmen, we have something to sell, we have better products, we have better medicine, better technology, we, have, we, we know to the third world countries you don't have water, you don't have this medicine. We go in as business people, and we go in as teachers. And as you go in as a business teacher, and then you go in to judge this crazy culture, why do they have to... Buses go over in the middle of the street to start to pick people up to run through. We, we, we criticize cultures so readily because we're better. Now notice what this, hap, what this does to the national. If you're a business person, that means you put the person, uh, the national, in his position as a consumer, as a buyer. If you're the teacher, you're the one that makes them feel inferior, that they need to learn from you. And if you are a judge, they feel evaluated and measured. They feel awkward. And as we go in, we have an attitude of, I have what you need, and I'm going to put myself in a role to help you get what you need, and then write home in my missionary letter, I can, I'm successful. Erase that or reverse that. And what Brewster said to me, Tom, in particular, said, if we go in this one, we need to reverse those and take the opposite. Let them be the business people, and you buy from them. Let them be the educator, and you learn from them. 
and let them be the judge of you, and you let that relationship bond carry you through. Then you take the humble position as, I will receive, I will learn from you, and I will let you check me out and say, this guy, nuts, American culture, whatever he goes. But you reverse these ideas and these attitudes shift as you have a connection that bonds. I'm saying this to you to say that when you get into the tactics and the, and the rational thinking about arguments, don't forget what Paul learned from Jesus, that it is a relational model. We are storytellers. The God who made the world, who made you in it, has got you called back to a relationship. That's good news. Paul would leave Athens and he would go into Corinth. And as we go into Corinth, let's follow Paul doing these same principles. Now, what this means is this. You need to be aware that God's Spirit does something different. You need to be aware of cultures and how cultures work. You need to be aware of different personalities. But you also need to be aware of yourself and how you move in relationship. All of these things are part of the things that you get to learn as you participate this year and trust God to touch others. With that, let me stop there. I'll go to midnight on this stuff. So thank you. And then uh, let me close with a word of prayer. Father, take these words. What's needed to stick with your spirit, help them go deep in our hearts. Thank you for persuading us. In Jesus' name, amen.